This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. He did the crimes that he was accused of committing and was convicted of committing. But there was a lot greater harm of the people who were in his orbit, especially the women he was married to, those that he had romantic relationships, be they physical or emotional or epistolary. And for sure, the girl that he killed and the woman that he almost murdered. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Author Sarah Weinman is one of my most favorite guests. You might remember her from last season when she talked about her true crime book, The Real Lolita. Now she's talking about her new book, Scoundrel. It's the story of a killer, the women in his life, and the conservative political commentator who tried to save him. So do we want to start with, do you call her Vicky or is it Victoria? Victoria Ann Zielinski. Yeah, well, the book starts with her and the first line is first Vicky. That was a deliberate choice because before we get into the complicated story of manipulation and literary merit and what we believe and who we choose to believe, it was so important for me to ground the story in who Vicky was and how little life she had lived because she was only 15 years old when she was murdered. So she just didn't have much in the way of opportunity to do all that much except be a teenager in Bergen County, New Jersey and hang out with her friends and go to church and try to survive in a home that ultimately proved to be somewhat abuse-laden. And she had a younger sister and a younger brother and an older sister and friends and an older boy that she was going on dates with even though not much was necessarily happening. Well, let's go back and start sort of from the beginning. When does she cross paths with Edgar Smith? So initially, she and Edgar had known each other just through the neighborhood. He was friendly with this other young man, Donald Hamill, who Vicky had gone out on a few dates with. It was sort of like, you know, a larger group of guys and a larger group of girls. They would go to the corral on Saturday nights. They would get ice cream at places. They would just sort of hang out because there they were small towns. There just wasn't a lot to do. And Vicky had a best friend named Barbara Nixon. And so on the night of March 4th, she was supposed to walk over to Barbara's house and they were going to do their homework together. But because the streets between where Vicky lived and where Barbara lived, and Vicky lived in Ramsey and Barbara lived in Mawa, but it was basically the same street, but it was poorly lit at the time of the evening when she was supposed to walk over. So Vicky and her younger sister Myrna had worked out a system where they would both start walking together and at the halfway point, Vicky would move on probably because it was better lit and Myrna would walk home. And then at an agreed upon time, they would converge again and walk back the rest of the way together. So the first part of that journey is successful. Vicky goes to Barbara's house. They work on their 
accounting homework together. And then when it's time to go home, Myrna's a little bit late, I think about 10 or 15 minutes, but she starts on her journey. She passes a car and sees that it's Don Hommel, who she knows a little bit again because he has gone out on a few dates with Vicky. And then when she gets to the halfway point, Vicky's not there. And then Myrna goes all the way over to the Nixon's house and they say, well, no, I mean, Vicky was here, but she's left. So that's when Myrna realizes something terrible has happened. She finally gets home, tells her parents that Vicky's missing. And then Vicky's father, Anthony, goes out and does an initial search, turns up nothing by midnight, he's home. And then they all stay up all night because, I mean, their daughter's missing. It's horrendous. The next morning, Anthony and his wife, Mary, they go out to take another look. And then Anthony sees some article of clothing. I believe it was a scarf that belonged to Vicky. And by that point, the police had already been alerted. And they all converge around the sand pit that's near a neighbor's house. And then at the sand pit, they see at the bottom of the embankment that there is Vicky's body and her head has been bashed Ugh, in. Yeah. How horrible to be the ones that find her. I mean, how terrible. So they talk to the police and what happens? It starts pretty much right away from the discovery of Vicky's body. They have to, I mean, it's pretty clear how she died, but there is a medical examiner who determines that the more, I guess, scientific word for what happened to her is decerebrated. Like that's how badly the damage was to her head. They find some bloody rocks nearby. Like this is not a scene that's like carefully cultivated. It's yeah. clearly the result of impulsive rage. Sexual assault or no sexual assault? Well, that would come under dispute. So there was no visible signs of sexual assault. They used a term called virgo intacta, which is essentially to say that the hymen was intact. Which we know doesn't mean everything right now. Exactly. We, You know, that means nothing at all. But in the 1957, they didn't know that. Right. So there were a lot of assumptions made about Vicky's virginity or lack thereof, which also gets to the larger thing of sexualization and trying to portray her as willful and wanton when that was anything but. So the police, they talked to a number of young men who are either in Vicky's sort of friend group or there was a military base not too far. So there's just like, a, they canvas, they talk. But then they get word from a guy named Joe Gilroy, whose car had been borrowed by a friend of his. And when he gets the car back, he sees that there's blood. It's in the passenger floorboards. He calls it in, just be like, this is weird. And he had seen Edgar and Edgar had acted in a way that was kind of shifty and just to kind of backtrack. So Edgar Smith at that point is 23 years old. He had married the previous June, his girlfriend, Patricia Horton. She was pregnant at the time and would deliver their first baby, Patricia Ann, in December of 1956. So by March of 57, Pat Smith is home with a three-month-old baby and they live in a trailer park and she basically spends time with her mother and her mother-in-law. That's about it. And Edgar, well, he'd been in the military and then he was discharged and he held jobs, but none of them took. And at the time of Vicky's murder, he had had a job and then been let go. So he was very much at loose ends and acted in a way more befitting of a bachelor than a married man with a young baby at home. And so when Joe Gilroy keeps getting these phone calls from Edgar Smith being like, hey, let's hang out, what's going on? And then they have a discussion and Don Hommel's around there too of, did you hear about this murder, that Victoria Zielinski has been murdered? And Edgar kind of brushes it off as this idea of, well, maybe it was like an insane guy or something. And when Gilroy discovers the blood, then he's like, I've got to tell police. So this all happens within the first 24 hours after Vicky's murder. So Edgar had borrowed Joe's car, and what did he say he was going to go do with it? And he didn't really give a good excuse. 
And Joe went to bed and then was watching TV and then he wakes up and there's Edgar on the phone again. And it's like, okay, I have your car. Let me pick you up and we can go somewhere. They kind of just acted like dumb young guys. Yeah. But obviously this takes on a much more sinister sheen when it turns out that not only is there blood in the car, but then police discover Edgar's bloody pants that were sort of discarded nearby. Okay, so let's talk about the evidence, which is very little, it sounds like. I know that he has this car, there's blood in the car. Did they match the blood to her blood, I'm assuming, in this car? I don't even necessarily think they got that far. There was some other circumstantial evidence that there was blood on other articles, that there were other items found in the vicinity of Edgar's trailer. He never outright confesses to murdering Vicky, but he does make incriminating statements essentially along the lines of, well, maybe I had something to do with it. Edgar claims that he wasn't the only one at the scene and Don Hummel was there, this guy who Vicky was dating. Is that his defense? So the whole idea is that he's present at the scene, but so is Don Hummel, and that Edgar Smith leaves and somehow magically Hummel and Vicky are still there. I mean, it's ludicrous on its face, but they needed a defense strategy and the patented some other guy did it seemed to make sense. How are they handling this interrogation? It's less about outright physical violence, although there are insinuations of that. There's just a lot of deprivation that he asks for food and water and doesn't necessarily get it at the times that he requests it. Certainly, there's a lot of lack of sleep, and we now know that someone staying up for many, many hours and many, many days is a sign of torture. Yeah. So just the way that they handled it, even though it for their time... I suppose would be, quote, benign, but to our modern day eyes, it still feels very much under question. So was there a witness to put them together at any point, Vicky and Edgar that night? No, there was not. It wasn't as if anybody spotted his car. It was just pretty much a circumstantial case. Did we get the impression that he snatched her or she got in and got a ride from him? Most likely she was walking home. He was driving by. She knows him, he knows her, she gets in, and then they have some kind of argument or altercation. He claims that she said something disparaging about his wife having an affair, which is, again, ludicrous because Pat is young and she's at home with a three-month-old baby. It isn't impossible, but it's just highly unlikely that that would have happened according to the way Edgar tried to spin it. So something happened, and then she gets out of the car He chases after her. They end up in the sand pit. He gets a rock, and that's how she meets her demise. But of course, he claimed that they were in the car. She said something nasty, and then they go out to the embankment, but then he leaves her there, and somehow magically Don Hommel is there. Like, it's just, every time I would read that, I just think, who are you trying to convince? And and yet, so many people were convinced of Edgar Smith's outright innocence, let alone that there was something fishy with how the interrogation or how the trial ensued. Okay, so remind me again, I might have forgotten. How does Joe's car get back to him? Does Edgar drive the car back? I believe Edgar comes to Joe's place, picks him up, and then they meet up with Don Hommel at a gas station and they go into town and Edgar wants to get a haircut and he's just acting a little bit weird. And that's when they have the conversation about Vicky. And then he's dropped off at the trailer park. Got it. And Joe takes the car home. And when he's by himself in the car, that's when he notices the blood. So Patricia Horton, his wife, what is her reaction? He's 23. How old is she with this young child? I believe 19. Okay. She was really young. So what is her reaction to this whole thing? Does she say, there's no way my husband did this? That's what she says publicly. 
Okay, so let's go back to the trial before we go to Edgar's time in prison. How is Vicky presented by the defense? I guess the good news is that she wasn't as slut-shamed as I thought she would be by the defense. But even so, the fact that he names Hamel as a suspect and talks about their relationship and casts aspersions, it's sort of like more subtle slut-shaming as opposed to overt. And it's just this idea of that the nature of the crime, that she was murdered so savagely, that her head was bashed in, and the fact that her virginity status is even discussed in open court, that automatically lends a sexual element, especially because it's not warranted. Is what is happening in their household, in Vicky's household, brought out at all? You were kind of touching on some abuse. Was anybody else a suspect from her house, maybe? It's interesting you mentioned that because when William F. Buckley, founder of the National Review, gets on in the case and there is a private investigator, Andy Nichol, who I don't really talk a lot about in the book just because you ever find a character that you know that if you start writing him, he's going to take over the whole book. And I felt like with Nichol, he had firmly believed in Edgar's innocence and he would prepare these reports talking to everybody. So at one point he was digging into Anthony's earlier life and trying to connect him to some unsolved murder of a girl 20 years before. Hmm. That was never proven. There is no evidence that Anthony Zielinski had anything to do with any prior case. But what is in the record is that at one point, a couple of years after Vicky's murder, he is arrested for domestic violence, for hitting his wife. And so the charges ultimately don't go anywhere, and it was never able to find disposition of it. But she files for divorce within a few months and makes some pretty incendiary charges about the level of his abuse and how horrible it was to be married to him. And so the divorce is granted. And then after a terrible accident that claims a couple of her fingers, she and her younger kids will eventually move to California. So clearly, just based on the incendiary charges that are in this divorce complaint, Mary had claimed that the abuse dated back to the 1940s when Vicky was very young. So... It's hard for me to know and to what degree Vicky had witnessed or was abused herself, but the fact that such charges could be made lend credence to the idea that this was not a, a great place to grow up in. It's terrible, and then she dies the way she dies in such violence. Let's talk about the end of the trial. So the jury has heard, is this a male jury, all-male jury? Sometimes I can't keep up with the timeline of when women were allowed to be on juries, and I know it varies state to state. There's so many different lists and documents that I was consulting to write Scoundrel. And I know I have a list of all 12 jurors. And again, this is different than today, but they would just name who the jurors were and list their addresses. Yeah. So I was able to figure out who they were. The foreman was male. And so when they deliberated again, as I mentioned, not only did it take less than two hours, I think it was like an hour 20. It was shockingly quick how they arrived at the guilty verdict to Edgar Smith. Like, it's almost like... They didn't have to deliberate very much. They probably took one vote and said guilty, and that was that. And this is 90% based on the blood, I'm assuming, right? And he confessed he saw her that night, and she was in that car. I think also he did testify in his own defense, and he was pretty heavily grilled by the prosecutor, Guy Khaleesi, on cross. So I think that also lent itself to he's not a credible witness, and we think what happened is pretty strong. Therefore, he was convicted. So what, did he offer a lot of inconsistencies on cross? Pretty much. He was just kind of shifty and he was trying to be calm, but Guy Khaleesi would catch him in some errors in his timeline and the like. And it lasted, I think it went into two or three days of solid cross. It took a long time. Wow. 
Okay. So he didn't do any favors for himself on the stand. He gets convicted and he's sentenced to death. Where is he going? What prison? So Trenton State Prison in Trenton, New Jersey, had a wing that was devoted to death row inmates. It was called the Death House then. A later iteration would be called Three Wing. And it was a pretty foul place to be. Edgar and other death row prisoners were only allowed to be out of their cell one hour a day. So essentially, they were in solitary the whole time. Mm-hmm. And he passed the time by reading and taking college courses by correspondence and writing a lot of letters and working on his appeals and becoming a pro se jailhouse lawyer. And at one point in 1958, he comes, I believe, within a half an hour of being executed before it is finally stayed. Wow. So that's how close it got. And so for Patricia and Patty Ann and Patricia's mother and Edgar's mother and Chupac, who was very fervent in her belief that her son was innocent and was trying to pay lawyers to help him until they all ran out of money. So this would also be a recurring theme that they would hire a lawyer, he would try to do something in state or federal court, and then the money would run out and then they would try to get somebody on the public defender side and then pay when they could. So that's also why when William F. Buckley enters the scene, it's not just that he genuinely believes in Edgar's innocence, it's that he's able to create a defense fund or help facilitate a defense fund that can keep those appeals going all the way to the Supreme Court. So give me the Cliff Notes version of William F. Buckley and how we get to, in the 1950s, how this man who would become a titan in conservatism has now taken up this case. So William F. Buckley was born into privilege in Connecticut. He was one of, I believe, 10 children. And his father, Will, had been an oil man and prominent in Mexico, grew up Catholic, and they believed in counter-revolution. It wasn't just that they were conservatives, it's that the world was something to revolt against and to fight against. And then Buckley himself, he was educated in boarding schools, and then he went to Yale and became a star debater. And that led to his first book, God and Man at Yale, which essentially argued that the liberal system of education was broken and needed to be completely rebuilt and fixed. So that launched him as a young conservative star. And then a few years later, he founds a magazine called National Review, which is essentially there to promote conservative ideas. This idea of we have to stand athwart history yelling stop, that progress is too much for us to bear and we need to put everything in our tracks. And of course, by progressivism, it means civil rights and gender equality and Later, he would get into trouble for writing an essay that was anti-gay and just really homophobic, and he would write racist essays. So there are a lot of terrible opinions that Buckley had, and he was able to disseminate them not just through National Review, but also through the column on the right that was syndicated in newspapers all across the country and beyond. So he learns of Edgar Smith basically because there's a newspaper article in which Edgar is quoted as saying that the warden had brought a copy of National Review and now that warden had been moved, so he no longer had access to the magazine and he felt bad about it. Hmm. And so Buckley hears about this and offers to send him a lifetime subscription. And one of the reporters who was working for National Review, Donald Cox, eventually writes an article on Edgar Smith for National Review in 1963. So they were the initial correspondents, but then Buckley kind of takes over in tandem. And then after the piece is published, they really start to correspond a lot more about Edgar's plight and what he needs for his defense and books and ideas and politics so that by the time Buckley himself writes about Edgar Smith in 1965, they are not only firm friends, but they've written essentially thousands of pages of correspondence between one another. Edgar doesn't strike me as a big reader. That comes in death row because essentially after a few years of feeling sorry for himself and just wanting to make sure that he wasn't executed, he's like, 
well, if I'm in here, I might as well better myself and I might as well start reading and take college courses and learn about the world. And that's what he does. And so even though the correspondence with Buckley kind of starts in this very accidental way, the fact that Edgar does seem to write well, and he starts to kind of mimic the way that Buckley writes as well. It's very laconic, it's very measured, and a few flourishes of phrase. That gets Buckley's attention because these are the things that he values. He values people who can write well. He values people who can express their opinions. He values people who seem to have sharp minds. And because he has come to believe that Edgar's innocent, that furthers the buy-in. What can William F. Buckley actually do in this situation? Well, certainly he can write articles like the one that he wrote for Esquire magazine called The Approaching End of Edgar H. Smith Jr., in which he outlines his version of what happened and the flaws in the interrogation and essentially why he believes that Edgar didn't do it and that Donald Hommel is a much better suspect. And then at the end of the piece, he says, if you are moved by this story, you can donate to a defense fund that has been set up. So Buckley himself doesn't set it up. But he does provide the initial funds and other people just start writing in and donating. And so because there had been some articles already about Buckley trying to visit Edgar in person, which became a whole protracted ordeal because the death house did not allow media to go in. And so Buckley essentially had to get a court order to say, I'm part of his legal defense team. Hmm. And that's how he was allowed in. So he writes this article, there's this defense fund, and people start donating. And one of the people who donates and also gets in touch with Buckley is a book editor named Sophie Wilkins, who is working at Alfred A. Knopf. And she had read the Esquire piece and intuits that based on Edgar's writing style in the letters that are quoted, he's working on something. Is he working on a book yet? So at that point, the answer is no. Within a few months, however, he writes to Buckley that he is indeed working on a book about his plight and essentially asserting his innocence in Vicky's murder. So he gets a book deal? Is that what we're leading up to? Buckley helps get him a book deal. Yes, that's true. So just to kind of backtrack, Sophie Wilkins was originally from Vienna, Austria, and she and her family emigrated when she was 12. She didn't speak a word of English. She was entirely self-taught. She would graduate high school early. She'd go to Brooklyn College. She eventually landed at Columbia. She would do graduate work there. She would also teach and work as a secretary to Lionel Trilling. She married several times. So that by the time she kind of enters the narrative, she's on her third husband, another academic and writer who is suffering from a lot of mental health issues. And she's essentially allotting a lot of her psychological and emotional time to giving care to him. And so she's alienated at work. She's not really acquiring a lot of books. She's older than most of the other editors and her sons are away at college. So she's sort of at loose end. She's lonely. She's alienated. And then reading this Esquire piece on Edgar Smith and then learning from Buckley that he is indeed working on a manuscript, she finally is in touch first with Edgar's mother. And then she and Edgar start corresponding properly in July of 1967. And at first it's all business, just talking about the state of the manuscript, how much he has left to write, whether he needs an agent, what books he might be reading. And then because of Sophie's nature to be very hypergraphic and oversherry, 
Edgar's letters take on that quality as well, so that within several months, they're essentially declaring love to one another. Hmm. And even though she goes to meet him and it has a very disappointing experience where essentially the Edgar of the letters does not match the Edgar in person. Hmm. He's a lot more taciturn. She's sort of put off by his northern New Jersey accent. He seems to be upset that he's having issues with his teeth, that they're broken or like ill-colored or whatever. <laughs> so, but then they go, they just sort of move past that and just continue on with the trajectory of their letters, which grow increasingly romantic and then increasingly erotic. And you have to imagine what it's like for me to be in the archives reading these letters. Oh, yeah. As they get progressively weirder and off the rails. And I'm just sitting there going, what am I reading? And did anyone read this before me? And I'm pretty sure the answer is no, which was also just kind of terrifying in its own way. But that's the nature of archival research, as I know you know, that you discover things that have essentially been hiding in plain sight the whole time. Whose archive is this in? I'm not going to go read these letters, but I'm just curious who would put these. Does she have an archive? She does. Oh, wow. When Sophie Wilkins died in 2003... She kept everything. She didn't really look through them. And I am sure for a a lot of reasons, she didn't really want to revisit this correspondence that she had with Edgar Smith, that it was just easier to shove it in a box and forget about it. But it was still there. So they're all donated to Columbia University. Oh, wow. And one day in 2016, I'm just looking for material and I see Edgar Smith's name mentioned in this archive. And I was like, that's interesting. I didn't know Sophie Wilkins had an archive. I had known she was his book editor. So I go there thinking it's just going to be typical professional correspondence between Edgar and Sophie. And then I start reading and my jaw drops because (laughs) it's very much the opposite. But it was really important for me, and thus it's important for the listener and the reader to remember that this woman is engaging in this very inappropriate relationship with a man who she thinks that he didn't do it, but it's very possible. And of course, now we know he did murder a teenage girl. And somehow both she and William F. Buckley and others who believed in Edgar's innocence sort of put that knowledge elsewhere. They just didn't want to think about, well, maybe he did murder Vicky Zielinski. Maybe he is capable of it. But he writes so well and he's able to produce a published book and it says interesting things about the criminal justice system. Yeah. And he says the right things and he's romantic in letters. So he's like a shapeshifter. He is a chameleon. Yeah. He's very much a chameleon. We've both dealt with those, you and I, I think, in books in the past. So, yes. So she is falling in love with this guy. She's taking up his cause. He has a book deal. He's better off than most writers I know at this point. He's in prison, though, and he's on death row. How do we shift from death row 30 minutes away from being executed to him actually walking out of the prison in Trenton? Well, that takes a few years because nothing ever happens super quickly in this story. From the time that he is convicted and sentenced to death to the time that he walks free, it's nearly 15 years. So after essentially incubating his first book with Sophie in this deeply inappropriate way. That book, Brief Against Death, is finally published in the fall of 1968. It's successful to some degree. It's very critically acclaimed. It gets rave reviews from the likes of crime writer Ross MacDonald in the New York Times, which never fails to stagger me. But about a month or so after the book is published, the Supreme Court finally rules 
on Edgar's case. And they determined that his confession was made under duress, that it should not have been used in the trial. And so they're going to throw it out and therefore it's remanded and he's eventually going to get a new trial. But it takes a few more years. There's some other procedural stuff happening in the state court. So he's not immediately let out. And then there's a hearing in early 1971 where the judge essentially says, yeah, like this confession, we can't use it. He needs a new trial. And so there's some back and forth. It's a question of what's Edgar going to do? Is he going to go on trial again? Is he going to plead guilty? And so he and his lawyers work it out, even though he protests a lot. But finally, he's convinced to plead guilty to second-degree murder. They didn't have an Alford plea in New Jersey, but it's essentially a functional Alford plea Mm -hmm. that he would admit guilt in court, and he does. And he's set free and he gets time served. But then the first thing that he does is he gets into a limo with Buckley and they go across the river and they tape a couple of episodes of Firing Line. That's Buckley's public affairs TV show. And within the first few minutes of that first episode where it's just Buckley and Smith speaking on the show, Smith's like, I didn't do it. I just said what I wanted to the court to get out. And so when in the second segment, several reporters, including one very persistent one from the New York Times named Ronald Sullivan, just interrogates Smith like, what are you doing? Why did you say one thing in court and now you're saying this other thing? Did you perjure yourself? And Buckley's just like, we can't discuss this anymore. We need to move on. So he is still out and free, right? The first night that Edgar is free, he's at the St. Regis Hotel. There is a little party that Buckley throws at his maisonette on the Upper East Side. And even then, people who met him, including Buckley's wife, Pat, there's a wonderful but Ultimately, I could not nail down the sourcing entirely, so it's just a footnote in my book. But apparently, according to people who heard it later, at one point, they lose track of where Edgar is and Pat yells, get that murderer out of my bedroom. So she saw right through him and there was no love lost and did not want to be around him and did not want anything to do with him. And at that point, Edgar had not only published the nonfiction book, Brief Against Death, He had also published a novel called A Reasonable Doubt, which was a fictionalization of his case. Hmm. And in some ways is a lot harder to read than Brief Against Death is because the nonfiction book with Sophie's editing, it actually is kind of well-written or there's a persuasive element to it. Mm -hmm. So I felt myself getting sucked in even though I knew very well what actually happened. And yet I could see from a craft standpoint how he was using his powers of persuasion, even on someone very well-versed like I was. So if that's how it was working on me, how would it work on someone who had no knowledge and just thought, oh yeah, of course he's innocent. Of course he didn't kill this girl. So... He had published that book. He was working on another nonfiction book. He was working on sort of a popcorn thriller that he published pseudonymously. And he claimed that he had stuff with editors at Playboy and some other magazines. So for the first year, he was kind of doing okay. And he was giving speaking gigs at criminal justice conferences and going to legal proceedings and then opining about them and writing op-eds. But by the time the next nonfiction book, Getting Out, is published that's when things start to go south. So he travels, he loses track of money, he takes up with a young woman in Bergen County who's about 20 years younger and very innocent in the ways of the world, even though she's very smart. And they get married and move out to San Diego. And there's a time when he and Buckley aren't in touch because he's kind of defaulted on a loan that Buckley had signed for. So there's some correspondence to that effect. And then finally, Edgar resurfaces and apologizes and claims he's going to pay it back, but that 
doesn't really happen. And then they meet again in person in 75 when Buckley's giving a lecture and Buckley meets Edgar's second wife, Paige, as well. And there's a letter between them where essentially Edgar writes, well, I'm at this point and it feels like deja vu. My wife is working, I'm not. I'm having trouble getting much in the way of writing work. And this feels a lot like it did in the late 50s. And it's like, oh, here's this foreshadowing. Yeah. And then cut to about a year later and he is legitimately out of work and Paige is legitimately supporting him. And he goes in for a job at, I think, the San Diego Union Tribune and they say no. And all the old rage is back. And that's when he takes Paige's car and starts driving and he sees a woman coming out of her job and kidnaps her. Tell me about the woman. This is in 76, is that right? That's right, yeah. So Lifteria Osbun, although she was usually known as Lisa, was a young woman. She was working at this clothing shop. She was married, had kids. I believe she was on her second marriage and he was on his second marriage. So they had like a blended family. She was in her early 30s. And she was just like a regular person and had never met Edgar Smith in her life before. And he grabs her from the parking lot and pushes her into the car and they struggle and he stabs her and he stabs her some more, but she is fighting the whole time and manages to get the car pulled over and the door open and then other drivers are getting out of their car and trying to figure out what's going on. And she finally rolls out of the car and is by the side of the road and he takes off in the car. Oh, wow. So he's a fugitive for a while. Yeah. But they do track the license plate and they trace it to Paige and from there they trace it to Edgar. And that's also when Buckley learns that Edgar has done this crime and that he's on the run and he figures that Edgar's going to call him, but that takes a little bit of time. And he somehow gets his way to New York and he borrows money from his old editor and he claims that he goes to Vicky's grave and like has contrition, but I, I think that's not necessarily true. And finally, about 10 or so days later, he ends up in Las Vegas and he calls the National Review offices. Buckley's not there, but his secretary, Francis Bronson, picks up. And so Edgar says, is Buckley there? And Francis, quick thinking, says, no, he's in New Mexico on a speaking engagement. And Edgar gives Buckley essentially the information as to where he is. So Francis relays this to Buckley. Buckley calls the FBI. Finally. Yes. The FBI shows up and arrests Edgar, who is at the hotel under an assumed name. And so Lisa survives. We know that, right? She does. She died in 2019. Did you get to talk to her for this book? I did not. I wish that I had, but I think by the time I was really seriously reaching out, she was already not doing well and her husband had died some years before. And obviously it would be great if her children or other relatives, if they were listening to this or if they happen to read about Scoundrel, that my door's always open to be in touch. That's the way I always try to operate with sources I'm unable to reach out to in time for a book's publication. Like the doors should always be open for that. Yeah. Do we know what Edgar's reaction is to Buckley being the one who turns him in the second time? Well, I don't think he learns that straight away. Although I believe when Edgar is in jail awaiting trial, he had asked through a proxy for Buckley to offer some kind of character reference that could be used, and Buckley declined. He just was like, I'm done. I have no interest in having any kind of relationship with this man going forward ever again. And so there is a trial, and Edgar does some very strange things where he claims that he's a mentally disordered sex offender and that it was a crime rooted in sex. And he finally admits to killing Victoria Zelensky once and for all, and he claims to have remorse. But the prosecutor sees through this because... 
for some reason in California at the time, if you claimed to be a sex offender, that you would get less time in prison than if it was just a robbery or if it was just a straight up murder or attempted murder. It's still a capital crime though, wasn't it? In 76, I, even though I think the death penalty was in the books, you know, he didn't kill Lisa Osborne. Right. So it was attempted murder. Therefore, that would not be a capital crime. Right. But he still faced the prospect of spending the rest of his life in prison. So then what ultimately happens? Well, he's found guilty and he's sentenced to life. But at the time, you could be paroled within just a few short years. So he's sentenced in 77. And I think the first parole hearing is in the early 80s. And certainly by 83, there's one. And it's just like he's up for parole, it seems like, every other year. Although some years he would just decline. And so there'd be periodic articles written about it in the LA Times and then the Bergen County newspapers. And the last major time that he was up for parole was in 2009. And at that point, he was denied for 15 years. And if he had gotten out, if it was 2024 and he was still alive, he'd be 90. So he was definitely going to be spending the rest of his life in prison. And so backtracking to 1979, that's the last time that Buckley publicly writes about Edgar Smith in any meaningful way. Hmm. He is asked by Life magazine to essentially write, if not a mea culpa, then what the hell happened? Yeah. And just detail how things fell off so spectacularly that Edgar, who had been on top of the world, is now in prison again for nearly murdering a woman. So Buckley kind of traces through that. And I wouldn't say that it's super self-reflective, but he's trying to grapple with something. Hmm. And there are some private indications and conversations with people who knew Edgar, especially with Sophie, that there is some remorse, there is some regret, There is some sense of we are survivors in a shared war. But then by the early 80s, it's like no more discussion. Yeah. And I was able to talk to some people who knew Buckley and I would ask them, did he ever talk about the Edgar Smith case? And they flat out said, no, it just wasn't ever a topic of discussion. What about Sophie Wilkins? There was a lot of private regret. She would write to Buckley. She would write to others. She felt as if there was some culpability that she just sort of forgot about Vicki Zielinski that she could just sort of put her story aside because it was much more important to midwife brief against death into existence. And so she would later claim after the fact that it was all a ruse. She didn't really fall in love with him. She didn't really have a, an emotional connection. It was really just about the book. And uh, that feels a little bit post hoc to me. Yeah. That she's trying to justify what happened. And I think having read her letters, there was something. And I think it may not have been real, but I think she felt that it was real. And that's why when he gets out, and even though they don't have that sort of sexual emotional connection anymore, she still asks him to come visit her at the office and he just doesn't show up Hmm. and is rude to her in other circumstances. So it just didn't end well. Yeah, it sounds like she benefited from that, obviously. She shouldn't have. I mean, boy, if he had really drawn her in after he got out, what a disaster that would have been for her. Well, he was trying to draw other people in after he got out, although that was not so much from a book publishing standpoint, but from a will you spend your life with me standpoint. We didn't even discuss Juliet Scheinman, who is a woman who had started corresponding with Edgar late in his time on death row and was sort of his first post-prison girlfriend. And she lived in New York. She had a couple of kids. She was an aspiring actor. She was an activist. But then within a couple of months, it was all over because... They went on a driving trip together. And at one point he starts choking her. Hmm. And she's like, stop the car, stop the car. And somehow gently talks him off the ledge and manages to convince him to drive back and take her home. But after that, it's over. So he did display 
these moments of rage to people he was intimate with. And that was also true with his first wife, Patricia, and his second wife, Paige. When he had the opportunity to hurt women in any way, shape, or form, he would. Does Victoria Zelensky have any sort of representation as these parole hearings come up? Does she have siblings who come? I don't know if her parents were still around. Well, her father died in the 70s. Her mother died in 2001. And her siblings, no, they just, it was too painful. Another instance of this is traumatic to process. We're not going to talk about it anymore. Mm. I was able to reach out to Vicky's niece, who was very helpful, although the interview that we did is not directly referenced in the book. But she basically said, this just wasn't something we talked about and I wanted to know more. And my mother and my aunt just, they couldn't. It was just too much. So ultimately what happens with Edgar Smith? He dies in prison. He does die in prison, but not before finally reconnecting with his daughter and granddaughter. And so I was able to track them down and they were very cooperative and helpful in speaking with me. And they described just how he he was able to somehow have money. He had an investment account, pension or... I mean, seriously? Yeah, I know. <laughs> he claimed in his last parole hearing that if he got out, he would make his living as an author. And I couldn't help but snicker. It's like, really? Do you understand how the economics of this work? It's <laughs> no, not happening. So... He reconnects with Patty Ann and Patty Ann's daughter and essentially pays for their ticket to come visit him, which they do. And he acts very weird and changes his story again and is now claiming he didn't kill Vicky, which baffles them because they know otherwise. And he had this habit of keeping tabs on people. So he would send Patty Ann stuff relating to her high school transcripts. And he was always on the alert about Paige, who again, he divorced and it was an acrimonious divorce and he would later sue her and he would essentially stalked her from prison. Hmm. It was a pretty horrible thing. Like it was cyber stalking because she would get stuff delivered to her address and she would have no idea how he knew her address and it would just freak her out. For that last parole hearing, she spoke with a reporter and just basically said, he cannot get out. Like he will ruin my life if that happens. Because of how I worked on Scoundrel, I started preliminary research and reporting at the end of 2014. And so I was reaching out to various people, including Edgar Smith, because he was still alive then. Hmm. And I had to sort of tread carefully and think about how I was going to approach him because even by that point, I knew he had told a million different versions of what happened. The one that I land on as being the most satisfactory as to what happened between him and Vicky is that when he described to the parole board again as, I was angry. And that feels as honest as he was capable of being about what happened in the car on the night of March 4th, 1957. So I didn't really want to ask him about that again because I thought I would not get, I wouldn't really get much in the way of good answers. And he seemed enough like, if not an outright psychopath, then certainly someone with those tendencies that he would just tell me whatever he wanted and it would be kind of useless. Yeah. So I initiated the correspondence by saying that I was working on something on William F. Buckley, which was true, and that I wanted to ask about his friendship with Buckley, which I legitimately did. And he writes this effusive letter back to me at the time I was still living in Brooklyn and said, you're the first person who's ever written me from Brooklyn. And I managed to be there when I was on the run. And then it's like, I had mentioned something about his health being bad. He's like, how did you know that? And then in my next letter, I quote some more from what he said in a parole board hearing, explained that a lot of people in this orbit had since died. And I just wanted to know what was up. And then I get a more contrite letter back. So thinking, okay. But I, I just get the sense of, I don't want to prolong this correspondence too long. I didn't think the likelihood of visiting him in person was good. 
I didn't know how I would feel about visiting him in person. I was working on other projects at the time, and I was learning about this litigious side to him, and that felt kind of threatening, frankly. Yeah. And then I finally just decide, I'm going to just ask a bunch of questions that I know have not been asked and that are committed to paper and send it off and see what happens, assuming nothing. He writes me back. He's like, I think you're writing a book about me and I don't like that and I'm not going to cooperate. And then proceeded to answer every question. Because <laughs> he couldn't help it. He couldn't help himself. I know. Yeah, because that's what people with psychopathy do. Okay. It's truly a compulsion. Yeah, it is. And so he did and because he, he wanted his way. So did you learn anything new from him that you think sheds light on the situation? No, I didn't really learn anything much at all. Well, good Lord, I hope you used a P.O. box or something. <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah, right. But let's just say that when I learned that Edgar had died, I had a lot of mixed emotions, especially because I knew there were sources that I needed to reach out to to let them know because yeah. they didn't know. But I also knew that his being dead meant that I had more freedom to write the story that needed to be written. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Nate Eaton on Lori Vallow Daybell and her very twisted world. You start telling someone with a personality that they're a goddess, that they were married in a previous life, which is what he was doing, that they helped create worlds and that they would usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And her friends describe it as a, it's like a match and gasoline. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Our sound designer is Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.